Hey, Prime members, you can listen to the Al Franken podcast ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today. This episode is brought in part to you by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like James Patterson's first audio-only thriller, The Coldest Case. Experience stories like never before, where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. Hey, everybody. I have a disturbing one today. You know, as usual. The subject today is immigration in our southern border and children and families and who we are. We are, of course, a country of immigrants. Let me tell you how much, as a nation, we value immigrants. In the entire history of the United States of America, in our 238 years as a republic, we have not had a president, a vice president, or a member of the cabinet who did not descend from immigrants until this year. It took till just a few weeks ago when Deb Holland, a member of the Laguna Pueblo tribe, took her oath as Secretary of the Interior. Must be nice, Deb Holland, being indigenous. Your forefathers didn't have to go through immigration like mine did. Sweet. My grandparents were immigrants. My mom's side came from Russia. My dad's from Germany, all about the same time, right? Uh, right at the turn of the century, about 1900. Uh, they came into New York Harbor, uh, passing the Statue of Liberty uh, with Emma Lazarus's uh, poem on its pedestal, Give Me Your Tired, Your Poor, Your Huddled Masses Yearning to Breathe Free, The Wretched Refuse of Your Teeming Shore. Send these, the homeless, tempest-tossed to me. I lift my lamp beside the golden door. I got to admit, that's a nice welcome. Now, all of my grandparents were Jews, uh, not particularly popular in, in some circles in this country at the time. Uh, even now, the guy who wore the Camp Auschwitz shirt at the Capitol at the riot in, uh, in January, clearly not a fan. Now, he might be surprised, uh, for example, that Michael Landon, Little Joe on Bonanza, and uh, Charles Ingalls on Little House on the Prairie, Jew. Really? Says the guy in Camp Auschwitz shirt. I like that show. Maybe these Jews aren't so bad after all. My grandpa, Simon Kunst, who came at the age of 16 from Russia, speaking no English, built a quilting factory. My grandfather, Otto Franken, from Germany, drove a truck from Washington Heights on the top of Manhattan to Maine and picked up lobsters and brought them back down to fancy schmancy uh, restaurants in the theater district. I never knew Otto. Uh, the kids in Washington Heights loved him. Uh, he died of tuberculosis in 1924 at the age of 48. They got on a boat across the ocean, speaking no English, to make a life here in America. That's uh, a lot of stories. It's all our stories, basically, except Deb Holland's, and except those coming from Honduras, Guatemala, and El Salvador. They're, they're walking. And when they get to the border, it's a much different case right now for these kids, certainly for their parents. They, they speak a different language. So did my grandparents. They have nothing or next to nothing so did my grandparents. They're fleeing corruption and violence and persecution. So did my grandparents. Give me your tired, your poor, your huddled masses, yearning to be free. My guest is Ali Narani, 
Ali is the executive director of the National Immigration Forum. He's been at this for almost 20 years, and he is exactly the right guy to talk to about all of this. And I hope you get as much out of listening to this as I got from talking with him. We've got a disturbing one today, you know, as usual. The best way to learn a language? Immersion. Living where the language is spoken and using it every day. But if that's not in the cards this year, you can still learn a language the second best way, and that's with Babbel. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts to help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel's convenient courses have helped me learn real-life conversation in German. For example, let's say you wanted to order soup with your dinner. Die Suppe würde mir auch gefallen. That means the soup. <laughs> that, means, that means I would also like the soup. And that way, I get soup with dinner. Here's a special limited-time deal for our listeners. Right now... Get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription, but only for our listeners at babbel.com slash franken. Get up to 60% off at babbel.com slash franken, spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash franken. Rules and restrictions may apply. We really need new phones. T-Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s, and each line is only $25 a month. New iPhone 15s? It's better over here. Only at T-Mobile get four iPhone 15s on us and four lines for $25 per line per month with eligible trade-in when you switch. Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month with auto-pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto-pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee at 24 monthly bill credits for all well qualified customers. Contact us before canceling account to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge applies. See T-Mobile.com. Well, we met uh, yesterday on the phone. Our mutual friend, uh, Maria Teresa Kumar, put us together. I told her I want to do a, a podcast on, on the border situation uh, today and, and immigration writ large in, in a way. And Maria Teresa said, you were the single best person I should talk to. You know, I, I have to send her that Venmo of $50 now, but um, she has hands, hands down one of just my favorite people. And I know... We've learned a lot from her over the years, and she's just done such great work at Voto Latino. Yeah, well, I, I, I don't necessarily trust her judgment. <laughs> um, but nevertheless, uh, she gave me your number, and you and I spoke yesterday about uh, this is an extremely complex, difficult, and emotional topic. And I have to say, we spoke for almost an hour, uh, and she made the right call. We, uh, we had a great discussion, and I certainly learned a lot. And um, I think we've arrived at kind of a, a, a shape for this discussion. Thanks to you, I think. Well, thank you. Well, let, let's, let's, let's see how let's, let's see what you say in about an hour, right? Didn't I contribute to shaping it? it I, I, I'm, I'm just following your lead here. Yeah, well, part of following my lead is when I say, give you a compliment, you give me one back. That's following. <laughs> that's called following. <laughs> okay, look, uh, <laughs> uh, we decided to start in uh, 2013, right? Yep. We could go from the first immigration thing in our history, the pilgrims, but let's start at 2013 because I was in on the Judiciary Committee then. At that time, we were writing a comprehensive immigration bill that passed the Senate with 68 votes uh, with the leadership of the Gang of Eight, Schumer, Durbin, Bennett, and Menendez on the Democratic side, and McCain, Flake, uh, Lindsey Graham, and Marco Rubio on the Republican side. And the bill created a path to citizenship for, what, about 10 to 12 million undocumented immigrants? Is that right? That is correct, yep. It was a great bill, I mean. Yeah, it was a great bill and had the support of uh, labor and had the support of uh, agriculture and of bi and of the, the uh, Chamber of Commerce. It had wide support, uh, also most importantly, with the American people. And then what the hell happened? And what the hell happened was the Tea Party, right? Yeah, and it was very much kind of the the implementation of kind of the Tea Party kind of way of thinking, and really that Eric Cantor race 
in a primary in June of 2014, where, you know, in the days and the weeks up to that election, you had Paul Ryan, uh, who was then chair of, I think, what, budget, um, Luis Gutierrez, mm -hmm. Democrat from uh, Illinois, from Chicago. The two of them were working together to whip votes. And their thinking was, Eric Cantor gets through his primary. The next day, we walk into Speaker Boehner's office and we lay out the votes and we pass this bill. Um, and, you know, the the... The bottom fell. Eric Cantor was in the leadership. What was he like? Uh, majority whip? Or he something? was. Yep. Yep. Yeah. Okay. So he's got this primary in Southern Virginia, and everybody assumes, okay, he's he's uh, you know he's a powerful guy. Uh, district wants a powerful guy to represent them in in the House. He's the majority whip, and boom, he loses. And the guy who beat him was just very anti-immigrant. That was his whole thing. But it was a combination of things. It was, yes, he ran on an anti-immigrant platform. And the interesting part about it was that Cantor was never really seen as somebody as pro-immigrant. He had occasionally said something positive about dreamers, but he was not, we didn't see him as a, as a yes vote by any means. Um, but Cantor was also, you know, a politician who just took his district for granted. And, you know, he was in DC the day of the primary, he wasn't even bothering to campaign. Um, so it was just a combination of a very powerful anti-immigrant message and a, a, a candidate or an incumbent who, frankly, had written off his his voters. And at the time, I remember Laura Ingram and other of these right wing folks really hitting Canner on on this, on this. Right. Absolutely. It, it was certainly the leading message. And, you know, because at that point you had the Senate bill being considered in the House. You also had the beginning of. Uh, a flow of, of unaccompanied children from Central America. So it was kind of a, a foreshadowing of kind of what we're seeing here, you know, today in terms of a, a Republican Party dragged far to the right and migration flows from Central America. But you know, I don't want I don't want to jump ahead on the timeline. Okay. Well, anyway, he loses in the primary, and bam, it's over. Right? This is not going to get passed in the House. And Marco Rubio, who had been part of the, the Gang of Eight, one of the four Republicans. After that, I remember talking to him, and he'd go like, well, look, uh, no, I'm not going to be for uh, comprehensive <laughs> immigration reform because it's not uh, politically possible, you know? And I went, huh? You were one of the Gang of Eight. And he goes, no, it's just not politically possible, and uh, frankly, I would uh, lose if I were for it, and... Uh, and I, I, this was an actually and is in the Senate and in the House or in Congress a politically respectable stance or excuse. You go like, oh, no, 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 no. I'm for this thing, but I can't be for it because I'd lose. This isn't just Republicans. This is both. That's a perfectly... <laughs> <laughs> uh, a perfectly legitimate excuse saying like, oh, no, 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 no. I'm for it, but I, I can't be for it. And, you know, it, it just feels like oftentimes, you know, again, Republicans and Democrats, there's there's kind of a hesitancy to kind of put in the work to explain an issue and to bring along voters and saying, okay, this is where we need to go. And it just these days, and especially in the immigration space, you know, we're always talking to, to Republicans and they're saying, yeah, we're with you, but I, I can't get there publicly. And, you know, there's, there's just a real hesitancy or refusal to do the work often. And my, my understanding is if you go to the American people and you say, do you think we should do comprehensive immigration reform and, and give a path to um, people who aren't documented now to citizenship, they will say, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's the reasonable, that's the smartest thing to do. And that's across both Democratic and even Republican voters. And even when you get to the subsector, subsegments of Republican voters, such as, you know, white evangelical Christians, um, people have come to appreciate the contributions of the undocumented and see that, you know, they have earned the opportunity to become United States citizens. Um, but so much, particularly within the Republican Party of the debate, is dominated by this far right wing um, that's small, but incredibly loud. And that's what shapes the, the perception of a lot of these members. And you talk about this a lot. You talk about that those of us who favor immigration and immigration uh, reform have to understand uh, the fear 
and even prejudices of folks who are against it and understand that and address it. Is that, is that a fair way of saying what you're saying? Or? Yeah, I, I mean, absolutely. In fact, in um, 2017, I published a book called uh, There Goes the Neighborhood, How Communities uh, Deal with Prejudice That Comes with American Immigration. And what I did in the book is really tried to lay out the conservative faith perspective, the law enforcement perspective, um, the business perspective of all from a conservative vantage point of why people have, yes, questions, but ultimately they want to be in the right position, right place on immigration. And what we found is that those fears boil down to culture, security, and the economy. Uh, I'll let you do it. But the culture part would be that they don't, they worry that, hey, I'm, we like being a white town. <laughs> and I'm comfortable with that. Yeah, it's, it's it's actually even a little bit more than that. And the way that, you know, I would boil it down is that the question they'll have is, are immigrants, are they integrating? Or are they isolating? You know, are they learning English? Um, or do I have to always press one for English? Um, from a security perspective, the question is, are immigrants, are they threats or protectors? Are they here to do harm or ultimately protect Americans and American values? And then from an economic perspective, the question is, are immigrants, are they givers or takers? Are they contributing to the economy? Or are they taking something from me? And we just, we're always trying to figure out, okay, how do we answer those questions that are kind of underneath the, the, the ugliness of this debate? And the ugliness of the debate gets a lot of voice. It gets a lot of voice in social media. It gets a lot of voice on places like Fox and Newsmax and OANN and uh, talk radio, right? Exactly. And, and, you know, kind of going back to that two thir 2013 bill that you helped pass in the Senate and then 2014 in the House, you know, if Boehner had, had kind of put his foot on the gas before the Cantor uh, primary and gotten that bill through, I could make an argument that Donald Trump would have had a much harder time, you know, winning that primary and much less the general election because the issue would have been kind of taken off the table and people would have seen that, okay, the world did not end because, you know, 11 million people are no longer living in the shadows. Um, so in some ways, you know, Boehner, his, his lack of aggressiveness on the issue, you really created a vacuum uh, into which uh, Trump stepped. Yeah, and I, I remember that. We passed that in 13. I'm thinking, okay, good. Now the House will take it up and we'll pass that. And, you know, Chamber of Commerce is for it. Uh, ag, ag culture is for it. Unions are for it. Pretty much everyone's for it. So let's do this. And I did not understand why they didn't. And then he waited until uh, that a canner uh, loss, and then boom, it, it just blew up and was over. Now, so we don't get it. We don't get the bill. And let's, so we've done 2013, <laughs> the hope. Uh, 2014, the uh, Tea Party ex and, and it falling apart. Let's go to 2015 and Syria. So what happens in 2015, or actually what begins in 2013, is the civil war in Syria. There's a drought, right? Uh, this is a climate change story in a way. It's it's amazing that we don't we don't we don't remember what was actually the the, the trigger for all this. Yeah, there's a huge drought in Syria, and so everybody kind of had to move into the cities, and things started uh, going south. And Assad, you know, he he clamps down. He and what's happened, you know, since then, what began it really in in 2015 is that you know millions of Syrians have been displaced either internally or uh, moving into Europe. But what happened is that the pictures and the news of hundreds of thousands of Syrian refugees trying to make it to Europe in order to gain asylum is that that reshaped in a very negative way, to say the least. The immigration debate in the U.S. and you know Trump when he comes down the golden escalator in June of 2016, we all remember that he talks about uh, you know uh, claiming that Mexico is sending rapists. Um, but what's happening across this the is country, actually in 15, isn't it? I mean, it's, it's, exactly. Yeah, yeah, it is in 15. And then what's happening across the country is that you have local press, you know, fixated on these Syrian refugee pictures and stories. And then in December 7th, 2015, Trump says that. Um, as president, he will ban Muslim immigration to the United States. So there's this conflation of Syrian refugees, Islam, immigration from Mexico and Central America, all into one really toxic narrative that Trump ultimately weaponizes in a way that was very successful for him. 
This is also a, a humanitarian catastrophe, but really also to our everlasting shame. Uh, we did not take the number of refugees from Syria that anywhere near what we should have. You know, I remember debating this in judiciary, and uh, Dick Durbin was a leader in this, and Jeff Sessions was just awful on this. And, of course, you know, Trump perpetrated this lie that, you know, oh, we don't know who these people are. No, no, we, we vetted them for two years, and I'm, you know, I'm still just very angry about that. You know, uh, just Trump came to Minnesota like two days before the election and just demagogued this, attacked the uh, Somalis in Minnesota, the Somali Minnesotans in Minnesota, two days before the campaign. And this was sick. This was just sick and it allowed him to win. It, it really did. It, it um, tapped into the cultural fear that people had, the security fear, and the economic fear um, by scapegoating immigrants and refugees, the overwhelming majority of whom were never going to set foot in the United States. And it just reshaped, you know, all, up to that point, you know, look, the immigration debate was already difficult, um, but he was able to create this mandate to really do everything that he could over the course of his his administration to end immigration to the United States as we know it. So he gets elected. So that takes us, he gets elected in 16, and that takes us to like, let's do 2017 to 2020, the Trump administration and their approach to our southern border and to Stephen Miller and Jeff Sessions. Um, this is uh, turning into a very dark uh, podcast, Al. We'll have to you know, get cheery at the end here. <laughs> well, uh, this is a dark, dark period, yep. but we'll yep. try. We'll try to, on, on, here on the podcast, uh, we try to uh, <laughs> uh, laugh in the face of horror and, and manage to do it sometimes. So um, let's see if I can uh, say something funny about Jeff Sessions <laughs> <laughs> and Stephen Miller. Oh, man. Um, so Jeff Sessions, right? So the thing about Jeff Sessions as attorney general and then Stephen Miller um, as kind of the point immigration person for the Trump administration. And and Miller had worked for Sessions in the Senate. So the, he's a Sessions guy. Exactly. Yeah. And the thing is that they were able to um, embed political appointees, whether it was from the Sessions Senate office or other very, very anti-immigrant Republican offices across the executive branch. So by having the right staff in place who really knew and understood the system, they were able to pull every single lever they could um, to, over the course of four years, put in place, I think, uh, over 1,100 changes to immigration policy. I would say like five of them I would, you know, I, I've heard or maybe could be seen as, as positive. So they, they put the, the people in place that could do the most damage. The interesting part about this, and, you know, we often forget about, you know, the public reaction to, you know, the, the, the initial travel bans. And we think about, obviously, the, the protests at the airports and the lawsuits by ACLU and others. But you also had organizations like, you know, the um, Mormon Church, the Southern Baptists, the Catholic Church, evangelicals, also pushing back on the Trump administration in those early days. And they were making a case that as a nation, we believe in religious liberty. Um, and there's no way we should be standing for uh, the discrimination or keeping people out of the country based on their religion. So in those first, you know, three to six months of 2017, we began to see kind of some hope of, okay, how do we create a different sort of conversation in conservative America that began to play out as those years went by? And uh, that's what started. But uh, this administration, to me, their response to immigration became, let's just be cruel. Let's be cruel. Let's make it not just to people crossing the border or wanting to cross the border and then separating children and all that kind of terrible stuff. But also, let's make every undocumented immigrant and and their children who are citizens, let's make them really scared. Let's really do a number on them. Let's do a number on American citizens in elementary school and make them scared every day that when they get home, their parents will be gone. And you saw this playing out, uh, you know, in communities across the country. And I think one of the stories that always sticks with me is, um, 
you know, it was a small town, I think in Ohio where uh, nobody knew that, you know, their favorite Mexican restaurant owned by an immigrant who was a volunteer with the, you know, a local fundraisers, et cetera, that is, he was undocumented. In fact, I think it was also eventually shown that uh, his wife voted for Trump. Um, but people, they didn't, they did not realize how close this issue was to their lives. Um, and they slowly began to understand the kind of the terror that uh, Trump was instilling uh, within the immigrant community. Oh, and look, in Minnesota, dairy farmers. Yeah. I remember in, in 13, when we're doing this bill, uh, I made the point, remember there were like seasonal stuff on agricultural workers, like you could come seasonally. And uh, I made the point in committee that cows need to be milked every day. You know, if you're a cow, you can't like not be milked for six months. <laughs> it right. would hurt. And so I educated a number of my colleagues on the Judiciary Committee that cows need to be milked every day. <laughs> uh, anyway, we need these workers. <laughs> we need these workers. And this is why the ag community was so for the 13 bill and why they were so upset during this part of the Trump administration about this. We do a lot of work in Idaho with uh, dairy farmers there, and they were some of the first folks out of the gates in 2017, standing up for their immigrant workforce, standing up for refugees in, in Idaho, because, you know, they had had, they worked shoulder to shoulder with this community, you know, practically 24 hours a day to make sure those, those cows are milked, um, you know, twice a day. By the way, Minnesota, we don't take favorably to Idaho dairy farmers. <laughs> And, and that, uh, I know that was uh, an industry that was uh, growing, and um, thanks to these horrible uh, immigration policies of this administration, thank God we, we hurt that industry in Idaho. <laughs> we dairy farmers in Minnesota. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back with Ali Narani, the executive director of the National Immigration Forum. This episode is brought to you by Noom. Forget one-size-fits-all diets. With Noom, you get a personalized weight loss plan that's tailored to your lifestyle. No food is off limits. Enjoy your favorites while discovering healthier habits. Noom's users love the flexible approach, blending psychology and biology to help you lose weight in a way that's sustainable for you. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M.com. And check out Noom's first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for 100 healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. We're back with Ali Narani, executive director of the National Immigration Forum. So let's talk, okay, culture, security, uh, givers or takers. So that speaks to givers or takers because the guy who owns the most popular uh, restaurant in town, and, and that is the case in big parts of Minnesota and red areas of Minnesota, the most popular <laughs> restaurant in town is a Mexican restaurant. And the, you know, I just had uh, Heather McGee on. You know Heather. Mm -hmm. And uh, she's written a book called uh, The Sum of Us about how, and this is part of this, that, that whites in America are sold by the oligarchy that uh, this is a zero-sum game, our economy, and that anything that helps people of color hurts them. And it's not true. It's just not true. And we all do better when we all do better, is what Paul Wellstone said. But they are being sold this. So they're being sold that 
But that's not true. And and in her book, The Sum of Us, we see all kinds of communities where uh, you see this all over the United States where uh, small towns have been re- revived uh, by immigration. Uh, what was that? What was that town in Iowa? A uh, storm like Iowa. Um you know, it's it's roughly about 10,000 people. It is one of the few rural towns in Iowa that has grown. And it's growing because of a growth in Hispanic, uh, in the Hispanic population from working age adults and now th- to children. Um, so there's, you know, there are dozens of languages uh, spoken in their school system, not just obviously Spanish, but, um, you know, they have a large and diverse refugee population. In fact, you know, I was just reading this the other day. Governor Ray of Iowa back in you know, the late 70s made the case for the group resettlement of the Thai Dom, um, which were uh, a group of ethnic Vietnamese who were displaced by after the Vietnam, Vietnam War. And he said he had heard about this community and uh, he brought 1,400 of them to Iowa and they ended up living either in Storm Lake or in uh, Des Moines and just kind of created this rich cultural diversity within rural Iowa that obviously Steve King, born in Storm Lake, by the way, never saw the value in. Okay, let's get to the border. Let's get to the border and what's been going on since uh, Trump uh, came in, what's been going on on the border. Let's go to Mexico. Let's go to Central America. Let's go to, you know, Honduras and uh, El El Salvador and Guatemala uh, and also to what's going on in Mexico and what Trump what what they did during their four years, where we are now, and what the future will look like. That's kind of a lot to bite off, but we sh- this is what I think people are focused on now. Yep. So in 2017, late 2017, um, the Trump administration started to secretly test a program in El Paso. Um, and that program was the separation of children from the parent who brought them to the border to seek asylum. And the legal kind of uh, mechanism that they used is that they would criminally charge the adult with entering without, uh, with crossing the border without inspection. And once a, an adult is criminally charged, their child is removed from them. So what happened in 2017, and this was then scaled uh, all across the border across 2018, is that you saw over time, thousands of, of families separated by the Trump administration and parents being criminally charged and their children being kicked into, you know, uh, the federal bureaucracy. Um, and then really trying to, you know, there's a lot of work to be done to try to re- reconnect the, the child to the, the parent. So that was in 2017 and then really, really took over the, the public's attention in the, the spring and summer of 2018 when we saw the pictures and we heard those recordings of children, you know, sobbing. Uh, because, you know, they had been taken from their parents. Yeah, I can't think of anything crueler. I can't think of the trauma that these parents and these kids will live with for the rest of their lives. These children, I mean, as a father and as a grandfather, this is just, I mean, it's maddening and heartbreaking. uh, And to, uh, I, I can't express it the cruelty of this. And that was part of, that was what they were doing. Let's be cruel. And the cruelty will uh, tamp down the number that that want to cross, right? Exactly. I mean, this was a Jeff Sessions and and Stephen Miller uh, strategy to make life as miserable as possible through these cruel policies so that nobody would ever want to come to the United States again. It's hard to, to believe that we did this as a country. But we did. But we did. And we elected Donald Trump as a country. And uh, he picked Jeff Sessions as attorney general, and he picked Stephen Miller basically in charge of our immigration policy. Okay, so so what's going on here? Now, uh, okay, let's go to Central America. These three countries are failing in different ways, okay? Is that fair to say? Fair to say. Talk a little bit about these countries, because we're talking about uh, Honduras, El Salvador, and Guatemala. Now, who are the leaders of of these countries? Who are the people who run these countries? Uh, Who are the elites? And, you know, talk about the drug cartels and now gangs and 
smuggle people. Uh, give, give us an overview of all that so we can understand it. Sure. So, you know, the, the U.S. relationship with the Central, these Central American countries, or they're also referred to as kind of the, the Northern Triangle countries of Central America, really, I think, in modern time dates back to the 1980s, where you saw communism um, starting to, you know, kind of try to make its way across you know, Nicaragua and other places where Honduras was used as kind of a, a landing pad for American efforts to push communism out of the region. And what happens as a result is that, you know, these societies are really destabilized by kind of, you know, what you could argue would be political meddling by the U.S. So that takes place in the 80s. And then in the 90s, they're trying to get back up on their feet. The economies are not clicking. Um, and who steps into the the, the vacuum again is a corporate is a, an elite um, class that you know is running some of the big energy companies the big uh, um, kind of agricultural companies you have a ruling class in terms of ruling uh, leading the governments that are increasingly corrupt and then you, third you have the cartels drug traffickers that once the US started to really kind of uh, make drug trafficking from South America into Miami more and more difficult, or South Florida more and more difficult. They moved their routes from South America or Colombia to South Florida to become Colombia into Central America and then to Mexico and to the U.S. So then you had over time uh, you know, this, these Central American countries really being kind of a highway for drug traffickers that you know also destabilized the, the nations um, and just made it increasingly difficult for. You know, a normal person to, to be able to make a living, uh, raise a family in a, in a safe fashion. Um, so, you know, you, you kind of put all those pieces together and you have societies that are just they're not stable and people are looking for a place to go. And lo and behold, they can literally walk to the United States. These cartels and uh, these drug traffickers are also beginning to tell people from those uh, three countries, one, we may kill you, <laughs> but instead of killing you, we will take money from you to get you up to the United States to take you up. Exactly. I mean, I was over the last few days, I talked to a lot of folks who are kind of doing their work, work these days in the region and, and also at the border. And in 2019, I did a couple trips to Honduras as well. And what happens is that, you know, let's say, you know, you're a father who owns a taxi, right? So you have to pay rent to the local gang in order to operate your business as a taxi. If you can't pay that rent, they will kill you. So then you have to pay a different smuggler to get you and your family to the US-Mexico border. And then once you reach the border, you have to pay a different cartel to actually have the privilege, if you will, to present to the US border protection uh, to ask for asylum. So the cartels and organized crime, they have really monetized the movement of people um, that they have played a large role in kind of creating by the violence and the impunity and the corruption in Central America to begin with. Okay, and all this raises the question eventually in the overview of the problem that we have now, which is how do you address that? That seems like a very, very, very big problem. Tell me about the president of Honduras and his brother. So President Juan Orlando Hernandez, he... Um, was elected, I want to say, in uh, 2015. Um, so there are a couple of things that happened really in 2015 and 16 that I think are important in terms of lessons for rooting out corruption. One is you had the Organization of American States deploy a mission to Honduras to conduct investigations um, into government leaders. They, in fact, in, uh, ended up prosecuting uh, the wife of a former president um, for corruption. The second thing that happened in 2016 was that there was um, a purge of the Honduran National Police um, so that thousands of Honduran National Police officers from leadership to rank and file were purged from the force in order to, in essence, rebuild confidence. Those programs started to backslide over the Trump administration because they started to take funding away and they kind of they, they, they stopped applying political pressure. So the Trump administration had a negative effect on these countries in, in terms of our goals of tamping down corruption, et cetera. Precisely, because, you know, you had Trump threatening to and then, you know, uh, pulling foreign aid. 
um, because he believed that they were not doing enough to stop migration. When in reality, the foreign aid was moving programs in the civil sector to actually stamp out and reduce corruption. Um, so he, you know, by, by threatening and then pulling money, he actually stopped the progress that was being made. Sounds like Trump didn't do his due diligence. I know that's that was a joke. That was that was a joke. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so talk about like Trump and Mexico, and you know, a part, Mexico is a big part of those people have to come through Mexico, right? Yep. So Trump is elected at the same time, or just before um, uh, Lopez Obrador is elected, the new the new Mexican president. Um, so, you know, Trump over the course of his campaign is obviously scapegoating Mexico and Mexicans gets in office. One of the first things that he says he wants to do is to renegotiate NAFTA. And there begins this process to negotiate you know, a new NAFTA or the U.S.-Mexico-Canada agreement, USMCA. So AMLO is under political pressure in Mexico to uh, make sure that that negotiation goes well because his business, you know, the the Mexican economy relies on, you know, trade with the U.S. to a large degree. And he's under pressure from the Trump administration to stop migration from Central America to the U.S.-Mexico border. So what AMLO ends up doing over the course of the Trump administration is that he deploys the federal army to the, the Mexican southern border. Mexico doesn't have a border patrol per se. They just have a military. So these are not individuals trained in uh, uh, migration management. These are individuals trained for military uh, actions. Mexico also does not have a you know well-functioning asylum or immigration system. But again, AMLO needs to kind of show Trump that he's clamping down. AMLO. So that's when you AMLO. See, sorry. Uh, AMLO is uh, President Lopez Obrador of Mexico. I'm sorry. Okay. Yes. Okay. I just thank you. <laughs> I did that on behalf of my audience and also me. <laughs> okay, good. Keep going. So uh, in Mexico, you start seeing pictures of migrants from Central America stopped at the border, oftentimes uh, violent clashes between Mexican uh, military police and, and migrants. But then eventually, you know, the cartels and the smugglers, they figure out a way around, right? Because that's kind of their, that's their, their job their job. They, they're good at they, it. They're, they're conscientious. They do their job. Right. Uh, so they start to get people to the border, um, you know, to the U.S.-Mexico border, get them around the Mexican military. Um, and then, you know, once they reach the U.S.-Mexico border, then Trump is in this position of, okay, how do I make sure that I keep people out uh, full stop? And that's when you see the Remain in Mexico or the um, uh, Migrant Protection Protocol Program uh, in early 2019. Explain that. So the child separation program that was halted in the summer of 2018 because of outcry from the public, but also from people like Franklin Graham and others on Trump's evangelical advisory board, uh, who just said, you know what, we cannot be doing this as a country. So six months later, they come up with this idea that people must wait in Mexico, remain in Mexico while their asylum cases are moving forward in the United States. Between 2019 and the end of the administration, we saw over 71,000 families pushed back into Mexico while their asylum cases were moving through the immigration court system. So these people are now pushed back. They're in Mexico. They hire people to get them into the United States by going toward the east? So there's a couple things that happen. So if uh, we started seeing people who were detained or pushed back in, um, you know, San Diego, Tijuana, they would start to move east to the Arizona desert. You saw people in Brownsville, south, south Texas, same thing. They would move kind of uh, northwest, if you will, again, to try to find other places. But the big thing here, Al, is that um, what would happen is that the the, the lie that the migrant was sold back in Honduras in you know 2019 was that you bring your child to the border and you can get in and be able to request asylum. I mean, I met with a coffee farmer in the highlands of Honduras. He told me that you know he paid a smuggler $6,000, had to mortgage his house, sell his car to make this journey. Took him and his daughter, I think, over a month. Gets to the border, 
and just realizes that that was a lie. Um, and there is no way to enter the, to enter the U S and that he would have to remain in Mexico while his case was being processed. I met another person in the same area who did the same thing. And then he was kidnapped. He and his family were kidnapped while they were waiting in Mexico. He decided eventually I got to scrape together the money and get my, get myself back to Honduras because it's not fun being kidnapped by the cartels in Matamoros. So he had to get the money to pay them off. I think his, his sister ended up paying $3,000. Yep. Okay. So this is just nightmare after nightmare for these folks. Precisely. Precisely. Including people dying uh, in the desert when these coyotes uh, take them across in places that are, are really hot and, and dry. Right. And, you know, I, I, it, you have to really thank the organizations that are working in the desert of Arizona and elsewhere who are, you know, trying to help these migrants just by giving them water and shelter when they get lost. And really they're on their last legs. And some of the, you know, these folks are just doing God's work in that, that space. But, you know, the coyotes just, you know, once trouble comes, the coyotes just split and folks are left to their own devices. Okay. So now, um, where are we now? We, we have a new administration. This is such a, a conundrum on what to do. Uh, and there are diff very many different views of what to do here. The president has put Vice President Harris in charge of this, which is a tough assignment, for mm -hmm. God's sakes, right? Tell me what they are considering, what, they, what, what choices they are faced with, what they have to do, what the political pressures are, uh, because there are within the Democratic Party, there are, are different uh, views, and and let me know what your what your thoughts are on all of this. Well, the big factor here is that once COVID nineteen hit, then the border really got shut down. And in March right. of last year, just about a year ago, President Trump instituted Title forty two restrictions on movement across the border. And what that means right, is that under, under Title forty two, which is part of the uh, CDC, is that because there is a public health crisis, to shorthand it, nobody is allowed to the border, which means that now the Biden administration is under incredible pressure, not just to reverse the over a thousand immigration policies that, you know, Sessions, Miller and company put into place, but also to reopen the border and reopen our asylum system. They cannot do that overnight. Um, and that's the challenge that they're in. So these days we're starting to see this spike in the flow of unaccompanied children to present at the border task for asylum. Those children are coming from a, a couple of different places. One is there continues to be a seasonal flow of children from Central America to the border to ask for asylum. We've seen this in 2014. We saw it in 2019. How, how old are these kids? You know, what I saw this morning was that the majority of the kids are, you know, early teens, um, like 13 to like 15, 16. Um, but you still had have a significant number, you know, 20 to 30 percent who are, you know, younger, like six to 10. And then you still have numbers, you know, a handful who are even younger than that in terms of toddlers or, you know, four years, four-year-olds four or five-year-olds. And, and how are they getting there? Are they getting there with uh, parents or family, or are they just getting there with these smugglers? Yeah, a couple different ways. One is, yes, they're still trafficking, a, uh, create, a traffic created by smugglers who are bringing children on their own. Uh, but then you also have parents who will come to the border, realize that the parents cannot cross the border, and then parents are making this very awful, difficult decision to send their children across on their own because they realize that that's the only way they can get their kids to safety. And then you have yes. a third population that's just been stranded on the border for months who are just at the end of, you know, they're struggling to survive. And now that they see that the Biden administration has lifted those Title 42 restrictions only for unaccompanied children and families with young children that they're deciding to send their children along on their own. Title 42 remains in place for families with older children as well as um, adults. So the border is nowhere near open, which is what many on the left would like to see the, the Biden administration do. Okay. So um, how feasible is that? I mean, 
it, it seems like there are only bad choices here in many ways. There are a lot of bad choices, and I think there are a lot of really good and important choices. Um, we think that the Biden administration needs to establish the infrastructure, the logistics, and the processes to reopen our asylum system and our border. So what does that look like? It means that in terms of infrastructure, make sure that there are the facilities in place, whether it's uh, military bases, soft-sided tents, or otherwise, let's make sure that whether it's Customs and Border Protection or Health and Human Services, that people have a place to go in order to uh, begin their process once they get to the border. In terms of the logistics, they've got to do a much better job of making sure that DHS, Department of Homeland Security, is talking to Health and Human Services um, because those are the two key agencies in terms of initial processing. And then third, in terms of processing, it means that Department of Justice needs to make sure that their immigration judges available to hear cases, um, that their asylum officers ready to conduct interviews. So it's a complicated problem that, yes, requires a complicated solution. But at the end of the day, none of this is new. It just takes time to stand up these systems and to then move people through the, the process. The, the, that's part of why I'm saying there are mainly bad choices now because of this time. Yep. Because between now and when you do that, invest those resources and get everything you said up, there's time. And between now and then, what do you do? And uh, what are the politics of that? And that is really, really difficult stuff, right? It really is because, I mean, I think Biden has done the right thing morally and politically by saying, we're going to protect children. But then you walk into the situation where you now have pictures of kids, you know, in these pods. Well, under the Trump administration, those were kids in cages. They're two very different things because there's two very different intentions. Remember, you said earlier, the Trump administration, their intention was to treat kids and families with extreme cruelty. The intention of the Biden administration is to treat kids and families with compassion, but the pictures still look the same, which creates this political pinch point, both from the left and the right. You know, beyond that, the 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 question of what are the numbers? Um, and I think the American public, for a country that's over 300 million people, we have this amazing ability to, you know, lose our minds over, uh, you know, 10,000 kids who are looking for protection. So there's this level setting of expectations and what does it really mean for the country and you know, what's the benefit to the country? How can we make this investment in doing the stuff you are saying we need to do? I mean, and, and how can we do all this stuff at the same time? Uh, you know, what, what we're talking about is addressing the corruption in Central America, probably addressing corruption in Mexico, Mm -hmm. And then we're talking about building the infrastructure so that you can house people humanely. You're also talking about our asylum process, which is uh, the backlogs are huge. Who gets to go before a judge and who gets a lawyer to go before a judge? I can't. I mean, are there actually I've heard of children who don't speak English, of course, going before an immigration judge for asylum. And maybe they get an interpreter, but, you know, you're not a, an immigration lawyer, but certainly a six-year-old kid isn't. This is, is insanely dysfunctional, right? And it kind of goes back to, like, why that 2013-2014 opportunity uh, that we lost is so critical because that would have created the legal channels for people to migrate from Central America to the U.S. So they would never have to make the case for asylum. They could have applied for a work visa, which they much rather would have done. So how do you address the small, the short-term problem that we face today? At the border, let's make sure that Secretary Mayorkas, Secretary Becerra, DHS, HHS, are putting the people and the infrastructure in place, that they are collaborating with nonprofit organizations at the border and across the country and churches across the country to make sure that these kids and families have a place to go that's safe and that they can get access to immigration attorneys. We did this in 2014. We did this in 2019. We can do that again now at the border. In the midterm and the long term, 
I think that the deployment um, of the vice president to really engage Central America and Mexico in the diplomacy and, you know, the, the arm twisting, if you will, that's necessary to start to root out corruption. But then let's move, let's rebuild those dollars so that non-governmental organizations in Central America can once again do the work that's necessary to stem violence, corruption, and poverty. So this is just going to, this is going to take time, but it's investment, you know, that we haven't made. How, how long, what is the backlog on, in terms of if you're, you're waiting for asylum, how, how long does it take? How many people are there in line? In the total immigration court system, I believe the, the backlog these days is well over a million cases. Um, an asylum case has several steps to it. So you have your initial credible fear interview. You pass that interview, then you kind of get kicked into the immigration courts and you start that process. That process can take months, if not typically two or three years at least, in order to get a case fully through the system um, and, and a final decision. So it's not a fast process by any means. And you know, I, that's why we think that, you know, having immigration judges who can actually use their expertise to adjudicate cases is such an important part of the solution. So we have to invest in them, right? Exactly. And, and you know, the, the, the detail here is that under the Trump administration, um, they increased immigration judges, but um, they each immigration judge had a set quota. So they had to really rocket through their caseload. Um, their discretion was limited by decisions that Attorney General Sessions and then Barr made around specific asylum cases. Um, and then I want to—I think there was a forty percent of asylum judges that were hired by Trump actually had no immigration experience. So these were not individuals who had expertise in immigration law. And what's that experience like? Now you're waiting. What happens between your first interview and when you finally go before uh, you get this adjudicated? Where do you go? What do you do? And and I know that you know Republicans, conservatives, racists uh, tend to demagogue this in terms of oh they go they disappear and kill people. That's kind of the sh shorthand for what they say. That is the shorthand. So what happens is that oftentimes an asylum applicant will have family, extended family here in the States. So that person will in essence serve as kind of a sponsor and that's where they'll land for those two or three years. After a certain amount of time, I think after six months, the individual can apply for work authorization. So then they can start to earn a living so that they're not, they're not scraping together you know, pennies to survive. But the thing is, is that the access to immigration attorneys is so important because the data shows that, you know, over 90% of cases that have um, access to an immigration attorney, they're going to appear for every single one of their hearings. In fact, it's 97%. Um, so you see that, you know, having, being able to be in a community, have access to an immigration attorney, um, just makes that process so much more seamless um, for everybody involved. How many immigration attorneys do we have and uh, how do we increase that number? I believe that the American Immigration Lawyers Association, which is the immigration bar, that they have about 15,000 members. Um, and that's kind of the range of, you know, your kind of corporate immigration attorneys and your big law firms. They don't always, they don't do a lot of kind of asylum cases for Central Americans, although to their credit, they do a lot, quite a bit of pro bono work. So, you know, I think one of the best things that I know I've seen over the last 10 years in this work is the increase in number of law students who are interested in immigration law because of the stories that we're seeing and hearing almost every single day, whether it's here in the U.S. or anywhere around the world. So we're starting to see an increase. But I got to say for, for the audience that, you know, if you have a local organization that provides legal services to the immigrant community, they are doing just heroic work day in and day out. And I'm sure that they would uh, really appreciate the support. That's great. Um, Maria Teresa said that you and she were invited to the White House to brief Jared Kushner um, <laughs> during the Trump administration. Is, is that something you're comfortable talking about? 
Yes, so there was a meeting with um, Jared and then um, Secretary Nielsen, uh, Kirsten Nielsen, who was then uh, acting head of DHS, was in the room as well, as well as uh, Miles Taylor, who was uh, her chief of staff. Um, and it was an interesting conversation because Kushner at that point was trying to figure out, is there a way to solve this riddle um, of children and families appearing at the border? And um, what, what year is this? When is this exactly? So probably 2018. Okay. Yeah. And, it, you know, he was asking questions, but it was, it was clear that, you know, look, it was clear that Stephen Miller was not in the room. And ultimately he was the one that was going to be along with Jeff Sessions really running the show. And I just got the feeling that both Nielsen and Kushner were trying to figure out, is there any way we can get around Stephen Miller? And, you know, that proved to not to be the case. So, so that didn't that that wasn't a productive meeting. I'm I'm a gathering. No, no, it was not a productive meeting. And, <laughs> yeah. Okay. Well, listen, we could continue with this. Is there anything that you want to cover that I haven't? This is obviously a complex topic where it involves the you know reforming Central America or the the northern tier of Central America and Mexico. And by the way, I think you told me that during the trade negotiations with Mexico, uh, and you hinted at this, I think, in this interview, that Trump used the terms of that to have Mexico crack down on Central American um, refugees. Right. So over the course of the USMCA negotiations, you saw these flows of migrants from Central America to the U.S.-Mexico border. And Trump, in a very Trump non-subtle way, would pressure uh, President Lopez Obrador of Mexico to clamp down on migration from Central America across the Mexican southern border or to really lose leverage in the negotiations with USMCA. You know, Lopez Obrador, over the course of the Trump administration, many in Mexico would argue this, is that he did everything he could to bend over backwards uh, to Trump in a way that probably undermined the safety and well-being of Mexican nationals in the U.S., much less, you know, people trying to make it to safety from Central America, you know, across Mexico. Okay, just another little wrinkle in the evil of uh, Donald Trump. Well, anyway, it's, I think to be continued because uh, I, I just, you know, I, I, I just think that right now, and this is something, of course, the Republicans are just, uh, senators are flooding to the border uh, to exploit this, right? Right. And, you know, a funny story on this is that, you know, you might have seen the, the video of Ted Cruz, uh, his breathy midnight video of kind of at the, the, Shore of the Rio Grande. Did you see that? Yeah, I did. <laughs> um, well, so well, he was standing well. among Carrizo Kane, leaders along the Texas border. We're talking law enforcement and business. We're talking a number of them are Trump voters, Trump donors. One of their security recommendations to DHS prior to you know Trump and today is to get rid of the Carrizo Kane because that, that's the foliage. That's the the those jungly looking thing. Right, right. That cruise yeah. <laughs> was, was roaming around in. So, you know, you get rid of the Carrizo cane, you keep smugglers out, and, you know, Ted Cruz has nowhere to go. Oh, he always has somewhere to go. <laughs> <laughs> you always find somewhere bad to go. Um, exactly. Or somewhere nice like Cancun. Um, thank you so much, and thank you for your, you've been doing this for, what, uh, 20 years or so? I, yep, since uh, 2003. Okay, well, that's actually only 18. Yeah. <laughs> okay, I was good at math. <laughs> but thank you for uh, for doing this for 18 years. And you're doing, you're doing like, a wonderful thing. And man, oh, man, um, this is complicated. And man, oh, man, uh, I hope, I, I wish uh, Vice President uh, Harris... Uh, you know, the best of luck in, in, in dealing with this and wisdom. And I hope she talks to you a lot. 
Well, thank you very much for, for having me, Alan. I, you know, looking forward to talking more about this. It is it is a complicated issue, but um, you know, the the one upside of Trump on immigration is that more people than ever asking questions about the issue. So I just think we we need to take advantage of that opportunity to help people understand what's going on and, and more importantly, you know, what needs to be changed. Hey, everybody, before you go, before you stop listening, I asked Ali for a number of uh, people who really, really help uh, those people at the border who are coming across the border. And these are groups that, that uh, I've given to before uh, in El Paso, the Annunciation House, and they house people. Also, Las Americas Immigrant Advocacy Center uh, in McAllen, Texas, Catholic Charities of the Rio Grande Valley, and in Arizona, Kino Border Initiative. Now, we have links to all of these in the podcast description. So uh, I hope you can help these folks. It's really needed, as you know. And uh, thank you for listening to my podcast. Thank you for your loyalty to that. And uh, this music by Leo Kotke, the brilliant Leo Kotke. Uh, our executive producer, Peter Ogburn, does this with me and is brilliant. And uh, thank you. Thank you for listening. Prime members, you can listen to the Al Franken podcast ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today. Or you can listen ad-free with Wondery Plus in Apple Podcasts. Before you go, tell us about yourself by completing a short survey at Wondery.com slash survey. Once upon a beat, remember those stories and fables that would capture your imagination and you couldn't wait to see how they would unfold? And now, when you read them as an adult, you think some of these old tales could use a fresh spin. We have a perfect podcast to bring you the stories you remember, remix, and reimagine for the kids in your life today. Join me, DJ Fuse, and my trusty turntable, Baby Scratch, as we spin up new tales in the New Kids and Family Podcast, Once Upon a Beat. Wondry and Tinkercast are bringing you a jam-packed, music-filled weekly party where hip-hop and fables meet. It's Once Upon a Beat. Follow Once Upon a Beat on the Wondry app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to Once Upon a Beat early and ad-free right now by joining Wondry Plus in the Wondry app or Wondry Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Once Upon a Beat. The early 2000s was a wild time for reality TV. There seemed to be an endless supply of shows that delivered entertainment for us, but trauma for children. I'm Misha Brown, the host of Wondery's podcast, The Big Flop. Each week on The Big Flop, comedians join me to chronicle the biggest pop culture fails of all time and try to answer the age-old question, who thought this was a good idea? We recently looked behind the scenes of what was really going on at Abby Lee Miller's dance studio. Abby's biggest misstep wasn't screaming nonsensical catchphrases or throwing chairs on television, but instead, she was choreographing financial fraud in plain sight. Join me to break down all the wild details of Abby Lee Miller's story. Follow The Big Flop on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to The Big Flop early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery+. Plus.